This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. I'd have to say that Sister Kate probably never did the shimmy, but I know she did things that most other people would never have done, and when she breathed her last breath, she must have had the sure and certain satisfaction of knowing that she left the world a better place for many adults than living, who at one time in their lives had been in her care. For people like Dr. Anna Habich, the best thing that Sister Kate ever did was to die. No matter what you say about a dead person, you can't be sued for defamation. And Dr. Habich had some vitriolic scorn to pour out on this poor dead woman. Why? Well, here's the story. Sister Kate, born Catherine Mary Clutterbuck, was born in 1861 at Bath in the English county of Somerset. At 22, she joined the Church of England Sisterhood in London. At first, she trained in nursing and the dispensary before she took her vows as a full sister of St. Michael's Convent, Kilburn. For the next 15 years, she did welfare work in the slums and dockside districts of London, as well as in her order's orphanage at Kilburn. Her order saw Australia as a place in need of its services and set up establishments in various parts of the country with the aim of helping poor and orphaned English children. The order had recently focused its main efforts on education. Education was something that Christians gave Australians before the states took over that role. It didn't take long for Perth to furnish the greater share of abandoned and orphaned Australian children, and not the English children that the Order had expected to be its focus. By 1903, the sisters had raised enough money through the church and from private donors to buy just over seven hectares of land at Parkerville in the Darling Ranges, just over 30 kilometres east of Perth. They employed contractors to build a number of cottages where they and the children could live and conduct their school. By the end of the year, what would later become known as the Parkerville Children's Home was up and running. Sister Kate had the gift of being able to get people 
to support the causes that she was wanting to realise. By 1909, Sister Kate, with the support of the State Education Department, began to build a new brick building on the Parkerville site where she installed a fully funded public school. In the 1910s and the 1920s, the Parkerville home became one of Perth's most fashionable charities. As I said, Sister Kate had proven gifted in winning support from dignitaries like the state governors, premiers and their wives, who frequently hosted or certainly at least attended her social and fundraising functions. She got endorsement from the West Australian newspaper. It launched fundraising drives for her. The most well-known was one called Appeal for One Million Pennies. The paper also wrote editorials urging readers to make donations. Sister Kate cultivated a number of local writers, including the well-known journalist of that day, Muriel Chase. There was no doubt about the genuine need at the time for such a residential child welfare and educational institution in Perth. The children attending Parkerville Children's Home met the usual profile of children who needed these institutions. Orphans whose parents were dead or unknown, illegitimate children of impoverished or alcoholic single parents, disabled and mentally retarded children, children who suffered from domestic violence, children of prostitutes who had been found living in brothels. During the home's first 20 years, its intake was almost entirely white children. Then a small number of Aboriginal children started to be admitted. By 1920, out of the 100 children, there were what appeared in a report as several baby Aboriginals. By 1932, there were 28 Aboriginal children aged from 3 to 13 years, out of its total enrolment of 143 children. It was at this time that Neville, the Chief Protector of Aborigines in Western Australia, began sending a small number of children under his wardship to Parkerville. Like he'd sent Molly, Gracie and Daisy, the rabbit-proof fence girls, to the Moore River Settlement. The Aboriginal children always remained a minority at Sister Kate's establishment. The fact that they were dark-skinned Aboriginals didn't make them stand out at Parkerville Children's Home. Staying there were Japanese, Chinese, Maori, Afghan and West Indian children as well as white children. Colour or race made no difference to Sister Kate. Any child in need was given a home and it seems the children didn't notice colour or race either. As St Paul had said in Galatians 3.28, now in Christ it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, a slave or free, male or female. You are all the same in Christ Jesus. Being incredibly successful at your job, as Sister Kate had proved to be, doesn't mean that your superiors will like you. Sometimes they might be afraid that you are a threat to their position. By 1932, Sister Kate had fallen out with Bishop Henry Le Fanu, the new Perth Anglican Archbishop. She turned 71 that year, and Archbishop Le Fanu wanted to replace her at Parkerville with younger nuns from his former diocese in Brisbane. But she wasn't done with her mission to serve these poor children, not by a long shot. 
Then journalist Paul Hasluck, later the longest-serving Federal Minister for Territories with a passion for Aboriginal affairs, was then writing a thesis on Aboriginal policy, a huge concern and interest of his. And somehow he was connected with Sister Kate's circle of acquaintances. She met up with him and said, I'm out of a job and I'm looking for something to do. Hasluck knew exactly what was needed then. He said she was just the right person who could fill the then-existing gap in state welfare provision for part-Aboriginal children. I drew her attention to the plight of the light-skinned part-Aboriginal children who had nowhere to go, not classed as Aborigines but not treated as the concern of the Child Welfare Department. White, neglected or mistreated children were committed to the care of the state but not these part Aborigines. Just what would those Aboriginal activists say should have happened to those children? Just be left to die, I guess. Sister Kate had enough private support and funds to start a new home to do what Paul Haslick had suggested. She then wrote to A.O. Neville. She offered to put herself and her home under his authority. She said... I have always been keenly interested in the half-castes and natives, and I should very much like to work among them. We would carry out all suggestions, rules and regulations you gave us, and be open to inspection, day or night, any time you wished, to send an inspector. Money for Neville was always tight, and you'd have to admit that if you were in his shoes, this offer was almost too good to be true. Without any departmental expenditure, he got an additional institution run by a woman with some of the best connections in Perth. She would bring to the cause of Aboriginal child welfare a far more prominent social standing than he could ever hope to achieve. But he'd be in charge. In the negotiations over the next 12 months, Neville made it clear that he'd choose which children would go to the new home and that he would remain their legal guardian. Sister Kate made her sole criterion for selection equally clear. I'll tell you what she wrote in a moment. First, let me give you some background to the letter. It was a private letter. It wasn't being written so people could see how good she was, how noble. She didn't want children to be removed from their mothers. Not even a sniff of the stolen generation's narrative in what she wanted to do. The children she wanted were the most poorest and neglected. There's no reason to doubt the authenticity that she wrote in the letter and that anything was other than heartfelt. This is what she wrote to Neville on 12 June 1933. We should, of course, like to have the most poorest and neglected children, not those who have mothers who love and care for them, but those who are most unwanted in the state. But we must leave that to you. Neville soon after got a bonus through Sister Kate. The first that he knew he was getting was a small seaside cottage at Buckland Hill, south of Cottesloe, owned by Sister Kate. She used that for the care of infants who were too young to go to school. The other facility she had was the use of a five-acre site in the eastern Perth suburb of Queen's Park, owned by Ruth Lefroy, one of her close supporters and collaborators. In May 1934, 
thanks to a charitable grant from the state's lotteries commissions, a six-bedroom cottage home was constructed on the Queen's Park site for a new collection of children. The Queen's Park children were of school age and they were enrolled in the nearby state school. By the end of the year, each of the homes at Buckland Hill and Queen's Park accommodated 11 children. Sometime between 1935 and 1936, the Buckland Hill Cottage ceased to be used and from that time on, all children went to Queen's Park. The first children at Queen's Park and Buckland Hill were part Aboriginal children from the Parkerville home. Sister Kate took them with her after she resigned. She also told Neville she could accommodate another six children if he could supply them. Neville instructed the superintendent of the Moore River Settlements to select the appropriate children. The definition of quarter caste at the time was usually decided on the rough-and-ready basis of appearance rather than descent. There wasn't enough information about the history of most children Moore River to make a precise evaluation. This was all done by guess and by God. Throughout Sister Kate's involvement with Queen's Park, the number of children enrolled was tiny. In the years 1934 to 1944, the home took in a total of 146 children. This gave an average of fewer than 15 admissions a year. These are the kind of numbers that Justice O'Loughlin utterly rejected in Part 7 of the series as representing any kind of mass removal of children. But that wasn't the picture that Dr Anna Habich, an Australian author, who has done rather well out of the stolen generation's myth by selling her version of the story of Sister Kate to our schoolchildren. Now, what do you want to make of those words that Sister Kate wrote to Mr Neville, the Chief Protector of Aborigines, on 12 June 1933? I'll repeat them. We would, of course, like to have the most poorest and neglected children, not those who have mothers who loved and care for them, but those who are most unwanted in the state. But we must leave that to you. Maybe you didn't think what Dr. Anna Habich painted as happening in her book, Broken Circles. That book was first published in November 2000. That's three years after the High Court of Australia had found that there was no genocide of the Aborigines in policies of the government, and three months after Justice O'Loughlin of the Federal Court of Australia found that there was no genocide of the Aboriginals in the way that the policies in the Northern Territory were implemented. In other words, by the time that Dr. Anna Habich's book came out, it had been established conclusively at law that there were no stolen generations. But who in Australia today knows that? Those conclusive judicial determinations by the highest courts in Australia didn't stop Dr. Habich dismissing the words in that letter from Sister Kate as part of a public fiction maintained about Sister Kate's motives over those years in running that home. Sister Kate must have had a crystal ball. Dr. Anna Habich's explanation for the letter is that Sister Kate had written it to hide the evil deeds that she was actually doing. Sister Kate had written the letter 17 years before Dr. Habich was born, apparently to throw her off the scent. 
It was 67 years later when Dr. Habich would come to write her book. Sister Kate's letter was 47 years before Dr. Peter Reed had invented the Stolen Generations, a name that his wife came up with instead of what he originally, perhaps less emotively but more realistically, called the Lost Generations. Stolen Generations that no Aboriginal activist had noticed until Dr. Peter Reed's revelation. Dr. Habich wrote this cruel comment on what Sister Kate was doing in her schools. Selected according to criteria of corporeal whiteness, the children were submitted to techniques of social engineering to make their minds as white as well. Contact with Aboriginal family members was strictly curtailed. Children were told that they were orphans or abandoned by uncaring parents, and some grew up not even knowing that they were of Aboriginal descent. Where did she get this stuff from? The Chinese communists didn't invent brainwashing until the 1940s, well after Sister Kate had taken on her role. Vera Whittington had written a biography called Sister Kate in 1999. One of the many people who Vera Whittington interviewed for her biography of Sister Kate was Sarah van der Berg, and she had this to say about her time at Sister Kate's home. I was three or four years old when I was taken from the cattle station. My mother had died. My father was working at the station but was often away. My extended family, my maternal grandfather, looked after me. Father couldn't read or write properly and probably we would not have been able to either. So in a way, I, I suppose it was quite the best thing for us to have been taken. Ken Colbing was another former occupant of the Queen's Park home that Vera Whittington interviewed for her book, and this is what he had to say. My mother died when I was a few months old. My aunt looked after me. I was a proper orphan. Sister Kate was just a wonderful person. She was such an anchor, especially to a kid like me. There were some like me, but some had brothers and sisters, and later on they were able to find their mothers and fathers. I was lucky because my aunties and uncles used to come down, see? That was one good thing. Compare those interviews with one that Anna Habich has in her book, in a book used by our schools to educate our children, or perhaps more accurately indoctrinate our children, called Broken Circles. She borrows an interview taken by the Aboriginal Legal Service of Western Australia in 1995, where the person interviewed had this to say. We were inculcated into a Christian religion, and my Aboriginal culture and history was non-existent. The fact is that our Aboriginality was never mentioned. It was never a consideration. They never prepared us for the fact that we had to one day leave the home and go into the outside world and deal with the fact that we were Aboriginal. We were being brought up as whites to live in a white society. Given that Sister Kate's home was a very small facility where children received care as close to that which their parents would have given them in an ideal world, these two types of accounts don't sit comfortably together. Dr. Anna Habich makes no reference to the favourable reports published in Vera Whittington's book that had already been published at the time Broken Circles came out. In line with the narrative of breeding out the colour that Anna Habich told her readers was what was happening at Sister Kate's home, 
It seems she made up an essential part of her narrative. In her book, Dr Anna Habich says that Neville told the 1937 conference in Canberra, attended by Aboriginal administrators from all around Australia, that most of the children sent to Sister Kate's had been born to domestic servant girls who he had placed in jobs in the white community, but who came back pregnant. He removed their children from their mothers and placed them in homes so they would grow up as whites, ignorant of their true background. So Dr Anna Habich's version goes. Neville did tell the 1937 conference that some of his domestic servant girls did get pregnant on the job and that he removed their children from them. That was standard practice in England, the United States of America, Canada, New Zealand and Australia at the time for any teenage girls, white, black, yellow or any other colour, who weren't married and had given birth to a child. There was absolutely nothing racist about it. There was no social welfare for single mums in those days. But Neville certainly didn't tell the conference that most of the children he sent to Sister Kate's home were children of unmarried teenage mothers. He never mentioned Sister Kate's home in this context at all. Dr Anna Habich might perhaps be able to explain the source that she used for this unrecorded piece of information. Dr Anna Habich's witch hunt of poor Sister Kate continued, she reveals, in the fact that Sister Kate continued to pursue her evil eugenic intent, even though Neville, its alleged instigator, had retired. In Clearing the Wheat Belt, another of Dr Habich's books on the stolen generation's theme, published in 1904, she says, Neville's vision of biological absorption was short-lived. He retired in 1940, and subsequent public exposure of Nazi eugenics-based race atrocities undermined support for the policy. Nevertheless, his determination to make black go white remained practice at Sister Kate's into the late 1940s, and it left a painful legacy for the children who inadvertently became part of this experiment in social and biological engineering. Dr Anna Habich had gotten this issue of eugenics completely upside down. For one thing, eugenics was a policy that naturally flowed from Darwin's theory of evolution, survival of the fittest. He wrote more about human beings whose existence should be ended in The Descent of Man. His idea of eugenics were enthusiastically embraced by the left of the day, the side of politics that Dr. Anna Habich presumably identifies herself with. Marx and Engels eagerly anticipated the day when inferior or reactionary races such as the Slavs would be exterminated to make way for better, more forwardly mobile stock. The most progressive of men, Francis Galton, Darwin's half-cousin, first popularised the view that traditional social sentimentalities inspired and maintained by religious myths had conspired to retard the natural process of evolution by preserving idiots, criminals, weaklings and the feckless from nature's just, if pitiless, verdicts. Darwin in The Descent of Man speaks of the injury done to the human race in developed lands by the unnatural preservation of and procreative license granted to defective persons. 
and he foretells the ultimate annihilation of the savage races by the civilized. H.G. Wells predicted the same thing with enthusiasm and pronounced the extermination of lesser races as a rational imperative. The left of Neville's day enthusiastically and proudly acknowledged the need for an ethical approach to society and race that was no longer bound to the obsolete Christian superstition that every life is equal, which is to say of equally infinite value. Of course, Sister Kate was one of those dinosaurs, a Christian, who thought that all people were of equal worth, all created in the image of God. What the Nazis did, another enthusiastic supporter of Charles Darwin, ended all enthusiasm for what had been done by the hugely popular idea with the left before World War II. Perhaps the Nazis had taken it a little too far. It's not clear why Anna Habich has missed the whole point of eugenics. The Nazis had special breeding facilities where women, who were identified as being perfect examples of the superior Aryan race, were mated with SS men, blonde, blue-eyed, perfect specimens of the Aryan race also. Dr. Anna Habich's concept of eugenics was that Neville was doing the exact thing that supporters of eugenics would have said was totally unacceptable, breeding whites with half-caste aboriginals. That would be the same as Nazis cross-breeding their magnificent Aryan race specimens with half-Jews. You don't mix races if you're a racist. If Neville was doing that, he clearly wasn't a racist. And to put the final nail in Dr. Anna Habich's eugenics theory for Sister Kate's home, you need to look at paragraph 1148 of the judgment of Justice O'Loughlin in the Cabillo Gunner case covered in part 7 of this series, where his honour found the fourth and last purpose for the removal policy, as identified by the applicants, was said to be to breed out half-caste Aboriginal people and protect the primacy of the Anglo-Saxon community. That must be rejected. The policy of removing half-caste children was for humanitarian reasons, as I've discussed above. Keith Winshuttle, in his book, The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, Volume 3, The Stolen Generations, 1881-2008, to 2008, had this to say about Dr. Anna Habich's virulent attacks on Sister Kate, who is happily dead and incapable, by reason of that, of being defamed by Dr. Habich. This is what he said. Sister Kate does not deserve such a reputation. The major accusations against her in the above statement are all false. She was not a hypocrite who, under the guise of benevolence, willfully destroyed intact families in pursuit of a racist agenda. She was an Anglican nun who worked for 40 years in Western Australia, housing, feeding, clothing and educating orphans, abandoned babies, destitute and disabled children, only a minority of whom were Aboriginal. She was a critic of impersonal child welfare institutions and created a new model of cottage homes where staff devoted individual love and attention to each child. In her youth, she took a vow of poverty and thereafter lived and worked in the same premises as the children she cared for. With minuscule funding from either her church or the state, 
she raised enough funds herself by organising charitable associations, meetings, concerts, fates, and making appeals to private donors. Over this time, she created three separate establishments for her charges. In the course of her life, she also suffered the indignity of church politics that insensitively and prematurely ousted her from her position. Anna Habich has defamed a good woman. Oh, and there are two other important things to note about Sister Kate and her homes. Australia's longest-serving minister for the territories, the man who had given Sister Kate the idea about where her loving, caring services would do most good after the Anglican Church had kicked her out, was a patron of her homes for many years. Another person intimately involved with Sister Kate's homes, as a former moderator of the Uniting Church and a member of the governing board of Sister Kate's home, was no other than Sir Ronald Wilson, the most senior member of the Bring Them Home Inquiry. He could hardly be thought of as someone who was working with Sister Kate to breed out the colour of the half-caste children that she cared for. Well, I think you'd have to say that that was not remotely a possibility. Many thousands of Australians, Christian missionaries and government civil servants worked for the bodies responsible for Aboriginal affairs in Australia throughout the period that Dr Peter Reid identified as the period when genocide was being committed by them between 1910 and 1980. Those people gave up the best years of their lives at enormous personal cost to them to help Aboriginals and half-caste Aboriginals, only to find themselves today being identified as the equivalent of perpetrators of the Nazi genocide. What have the consequences been of making it pretty much taboo to get involved with helping Aboriginal children since the Bring Them Home report? That's for the final part of this series. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.